So this is our order of March for the weekend. We are in session three. Uh, you remember session one, Abraham, Abram the warrior, the giver, the servant. The most high God is the possessor of heaven and earth and all that means for us. Session two, Caleb leading in difficult times. The main idea was live so God delights in us. And we'll talk through uh, the 10 leadership maneuvers. Uh, this session is going to be a little different than the first two. We took a character study of Abram in Genesis 14 last night and of Caleb and um, by extension Joshua this morning. What I want to do in sessions three and four is I want to share with you some uh, things that I've experienced in life and have impacted me and uh, others have uh, told me that in the case of 10 Leadership Maneuvers, they really wanted me to write this stuff down so others could benefit from it and in the hard part of, of leading. So that's what we will do. With regard to the 10 Leadership Maneuvers, uh, this morning before I came over here, I read a missionary friend of mine's blog. His name is Tom Wolf. He's a long time, 25 year missionary for the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism. And he wrote the following. Uh, Addressing the topic of leadership and integrity carries a significant risk, which genuinely concerns me because I wouldn't want to inadvertently portray an image that I, or anyone serving in Christian leadership, have all the answers and get everything right. Man, I can identify with that. This verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, uh, 10, verse 12, comes to mind, Tom continues. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. As does a memorable truth spoken often by my mentor and dear friend, Bruce McDonald. Tom, we are all wrong about something. So if that's the way you feel, I'm in good company because that's the way I feel. I don't always get it right. Uh, someone said, I'm 100% sure that I don't have it 100% right. Uh, and I can identify with that. So uh, that book is available. Uh, in case you haven't really tracked with me completely, uh, the subtitle of the book is not a typo. We often would put leading before serving. And this is quite intentional, to put serving first. As I mentioned last night, I think if we get the serving part well, the leadership will take care of itself. And so this is my approach to leadership. Uh, it's a general's guide to serving and leading, and, and the order is intentional. <clears throat> so I deal with this in the introduction to the book and have added some thoughts. Um, why should I add my voice to a crowd of other voices? I read on Google one time, we know that's accurate, right? <laughs> that there are 40,000 books on leadership that come out that Amazon adds to its list every year. 40,000 books. How could so much be written about a single topic? And, and who am I to think I would have anything to add to that? So um, let me start off and give you some of the reasons why I am adding my voice to a crowd of other voices. Number one, 
10 leadership maneuvers is about ways of leading I have seen succeed in others or myself. If it's not biblically traceable, frankly, I'm not interested. Uh, there are also 33 plus stories in the 10 leadership maneuvers, mostly about military, mostly personal, and often about my failures. So I think it's, guys, when we talk about leadership to others, I think we need to balance our stories. If, if we tell stories where we are always the hero, we are sending the message that everything we do turns to gold. We never make a mistake. Now, a little self-deprecation goes a long way, I get it. And we don't want to always and only be on that side. But strike a balance in the telling of your stories, your personal stories. If you're a pastor speaking from the pulpit, sharing personal examples, uh, balance those out. Uh, number two, younger officers, when I was on active duty, called them Reno's rules when they weren't in my hearing. And so I, this is long before I wrote the book or even thought about it. Um, but I talked, I shared these 10 maneuvers that you're going to see when I was on active duty. And you're going to see when we get down the list, you're going to say, whoa, what about the PC? You're talking spiritual. You're talking God. You're talking relationship. Yes, sir, I did. Because that's who I am. And, and you're not going to see what makes me tick. You're not going to understand my approach to serving and leading if you don't know that I serve the Most High God. So I didn't back away from that, but Reno's rules became 10 leadership maneuvers. Number three, seeing God's hand on others as I have seen his hand on me is really important. I, I grew up in a small town in Ohio, and, and I went to officer training school, not the academy. I was a navigator, not a pilot. I mean, I, I, just, I was just a common dude that the Lord decided to put his hand on, kind of like Gideon, right? The least of my brethren. Just a common dude. He was probably at the 7-Eleven when, when the Lord spoke to him the first time. Okay, I just made that up. But you know what I'm saying? And some of you feel like, well, I'm never a general and I won't be a pastor and I'm just a common dude. Yeah? Welcome to the club. I want you to look for God's hand on your life so you give him the credit. Number four, the core of man's way is flawed because man seeks power and prestige and status and wealth and entitlement and is not very much about serving and stewarding. It's me versus others. And I can't help but think of Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Do you see the others' focus that it's about... Uh, Man doesn't think that way naturally. God's man does. Uh, number five, the list of attributes. You know, man's list is solo and strong and smart and successful. 
versus humble and holy and him-focused, Jesus-focused. Okay, this is Saturday, and you're going to skip some college football games today. It's serving for an audience of one. Okay, that's, that's God's way. Uh, number six, um, irrefutable parts of leading aren't always PC. And yet, uh, things like admitting wrong and truth-telling and not exaggerating and let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips, Proverbs 27, 2, is the way we should lead. And I wanted to capture that. Uh, number seven. Too little is written about informal leading. You see, formal leaders are ones who are elected or appointed or are set up in certain positions. We give them titles like president and speaker and coach and pastor. Those are formal titles to formal positions of leadership. And they are important to be sure. There are way more informal leaders who don't have those titles and that recognition who the Lord really uses to inspire and influence others. Pastors, you know who I'm talking about. There's a name that comes to your mind right now in your church who's an informal leader. They're not president, chief, or chairman of anything. And yet so much rides on them. So I'm talking to everyone in this room, whether you are, you're a formal leader or you're an informal leader. Introverts, Tim Elmore writes, will influence 10,000 people in their lifetime. Introverts, people that are the last one to speak, they're shying back. 10,000 people in your lifetime you will influence. Think about the, the introverts that God chose and promoted and used. Think of David the shepherd. Number eight, in birth order, when birth order was important. Think of Gideon, the least of the least. Number eight, self-leadership failures trace back, in most cases, to selfishness. And so leading oneself really needs to come before you take on leading others and doing that well. Uh, I know the right thing to do, but I don't want to do it. How can one expect discipline in others if they lack it in themselves? Number nine, serving empowers and informs and guides the leader as the cake quietly in darkness but with more substance, supports the icing. Serving without leading can work just fine and better than the icing with no cake. So my attempt at a metaphor there, it's really the biggest part of the cake. And then number 10, serving relies on the initiative of others. Seeking to serve flows from one's own initiative, one's own observation, determination, priorities. So it's one thing, <coughs> if I start coughing, for me to say, Pastor Stephen, would you get me something to drink? That would be serving. I asked him, he responded, he's happy to do it, and most of us are happy to serve. Ryan Marshall 
thought about this before I even took the platform. And he put one up here just in case. So as we serve, thinking about serving for sure with a ready attitude and the right spirit, but also look for opportunities and step in seeking to serve. Um, that's, that's probably a tenth reason. Okay, so that's, that's why I wanted to add my voice to the crowd of other voices in this area of leadership. I think a good place to start is he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So this comes right from David's mouth. After he was king of Israel for 40 years, first Judah and then the combined kingdom. Uh, the ESV reads this way. I love it. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Do you, do you get the feeling of the kind of leader? It's not the authoritarian. I'm in charge and you're not, so listen. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, the rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. That's the kind of leadership I embrace. And I think learning about leadership from Scripture is the absolute best way to do it. And so what I want to do is to show you uh, my 10 leadership maneuvers. You'll see for each of them briefly what it means and then the scriptural basis for it. And then as we have time, I'll share with you some of the stories. Most of the stories are in the book. Someone told me at the break they've already read the first four chapters. So you'll, you'll be able to get it. So, so I'll just highlight this. Uh, because I want to leave some time at the end for Q&A or Q&S. You know what Q&S is, right? That's question in silence. If it's a hard question, I won't be able to answer it. But Q&A, I'll be happy to, and I'll ask Pastor Stephen to help me uh, with that. So number one, the greatest is to serve. We see these three passages, which I'm not going to read to you. Uh, I would just ask... Is serving prerequisite for leading or is it part of it? Is serving prerequisite for leading or is it part of it? And I think the answer is yes. It's both. These verses are quoted ten times in the gospel. And Warren Wearsby wrote this. True greatness is found in serving others, not in forcing others to serve us. John 3.30 and John 13.12-17. True greatness is not manufactured, Wearsby continues. It can only come from God as we obey Him. If we exalt ourselves, God will humble us. But if we humble ourselves in due time, God will exalt us. 1 Peter 5.6 and James 4.10. Ellicott wrote, The words admit to a, of a twofold meaning, either one... As in Mark 9.35, they assert a law of retribution. The man who seeks to be greatest shall be the servant of all. Or two, they point out the other law of which our Lord's own life was the highest illustration. That he who is really greatest will show his greatness, not in asserting it, but in a life of ministration. End quote. Think about that. Benson writes, the words may either imply first a promise 
that such should be accounted greatest and stand highest in the favor of God, who should be most humble, submissive, and serviceable. Or, second, a precept enjoining the person who should be advanced to any place of dignity, trust, or honor in the church to consider himself as peculiarly called thereby not to be a lord, but a minister, and to serve others in love. The greatest is a servant. I see a distinct link between being humble and being exalted. I think there is a link between leaders and followers. And I would assert that the greatest pastor is a servant pastor. The greatest elder is a servant elder. The greatest officer is a servant officer. The greatest fill-in-the-blank is a servant. Think of these biblical examples. Joseph went from slave. He was sold into bondage by his brothers. He went from slave to prime minister by serving. David, the youngest of eight sons, to the next king. Daniel from captive probably walked 800 miles to get to Babylon in the, in the neighborhood of Baghdad. Some of you have been there. Captive to the number one of three presidents by serving. Nehemiah, cupbearer. You know, he's the guy that ate the food and drank it before the king did because if it's poisoned, he's expendable. You know, that, that's the kind of job he had. He went from that job to being a governor. And Jesus, creator to the cross, to the coming king. So I'll tell you this story uh, at the next session. It's a, it's a great story. But it, it, uh, it illustrates a person that was really trying to serve and it didn't work out that well. And so I would, would tell you, serve anyway. Do the serving and leave, let the chips fall where they may. Let the outcomes be whatever they're going to be. I'll, I'll tell you that one this evening. So the second is justice, mercy, and humility. So if justice and mercy are at opposite ends of a continuum, that is, they're the opposite, how do you do both? You know, you either give justice... You messed up, you're going to pay the price. Or you give mercy. You messed up, but ah, don't worry about it. If they are at the opposite end of a continuum, how do you do both? Because Micah 6.8 says, He hath shown the old man what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I would tell you that I don't think they are at the opposite ends of a continuum. You're not told to do both if you can't do both. I, I think it's easier to separate justice and mercy in our thinking than it is to do both. Uh, I think we can do justly in a merciful manner. I had a friend who was the wing commander at one of the Air Force bases. It was Whiteman, actually, in Missouri. And there was an NCO that he offered an Article 15 to in lieu of a court-martial. And it ended up taking a stripe and some money from him. Um, 
the man accepted the Article 15 instead of the court-martial. But he did it privately, and he separated the sin from the sinner, and he worked with him through it, and he didn't take the man's dignity. And when it all played out, and the guy got his stripe back months later, he was the best follower that wing commander friend of mine had because he did justly, but he did it mercifully. And so, leaders, when you have to do justly, don't make it about yourself. Don't take the high position. Do it mercifully. And how do you then balance justice and mercy? You do it by walking humbly with your God. You know, my best single advice for aspiring leaders is a little humility goes a long way. Um, so whether you're a parent, a pastor, a teacher, or missionaries, um, justice, mercy, and humility. I think of the example in 2 Samuel 12. It's David after he sinned with Bathsheba and taking Uriah's life, and the child was sick. And he says in verses 22 and 23 of 1 Samuel 12, uh, he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. That's showing humility. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious unto me. That would be mercy. That the child may live, but now he is dead. That was justice. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Fasted, perhaps gracious. Child is dead, all three. I think of Jesus in John 8. Do you remember when the scribes and Pharisees brought the woman taken in the very act of adultery? I'm not going to get into if she was taken in the very act, where was the other participant? And was it one of them? I don't know all of that. But regardless, I see that Jesus stooped, he, he stood uh, and, and let them know uh, who is without sin among them, they should throw the first stone. He first took a posture and a position of humility and he stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger. I'll get with Pastor Hart later and, and he can illuminate me what exactly Jesus wrote in the dust. I would love to know that, but I don't. And we didn't need it. That's why it's not in scripture. And then he stood and responded to them. Then he bent down again. And they all went away from starting from the older ones to the youngest. And then he stood again and said to the woman, uh, where are they? Uh, has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and, f and from now on sin no more. You see him taking a position of humility before the spiritual leaders. His posture, position was down on the ground. Then he rose and he acknowledged that yes, justice should be done. So let him that's without sin cast the first stone. Uh, that would be only him. They left convicted, and then he told her, gave her mercy, and did not con confront. Uh, let me just uh, go back if I can. Yeah, this uh, NCO in Afghanistan. Um, so this would have been in about 2010. I was visiting a Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. And I got in right around the supper hour, and uh, guys, I was at the DFAC. 
uh, civilians, that's the dining facility. We turn everything into an acronym, right? So we went to the DFAC where the rest of the guys were, and there were probably about 40 guys in a room. The tables were in a U-shape, and they had a place for me at the head, and they were all standing in place around. So I wanted to shake their hand, ask them where they're from in the States and what they're doing here at Bagram, uh, just so I can kind of get up close and get the feel for, the, for how the, the folks were doing. And then we'll all go through the buffet and come back and eat and have a chance to talk. And so everyone, my name, my home base, what I do, my name, my home base, what I do, my name, my home base, what I do. And I got to a guy about halfway around. He said, you saved my career. I was expecting name, home base, career. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, what would you say? He said, you saved my career. So I looked at his name tag. Didn't ring any bells. Looked at his badge. Security forces. Looked at his stripes, master sergeant. Looked at his face. I didn't know who it was. So he told me the story. He said, back in 1993, you were the group commander at Shepherd Air Force Base. I remember that. It's a tech training school, about 5,200 students and faculty. And, and I was the commander. And so when a student would fail an exam, it was up to the instructor and the chief instructor and the flight commander and the squadron commander to decide whether to recommend that person be separated. And as long as they were in the service less, 180 days or less, I had the discharge authority. So I could separate them from the Air Force, send them home on a bus, and no harm, no foul, they're out of the Air Force. And so I didn't remember this story as he was telling me, but he flunked the same test. He was training to be a crew chief once, twice, three times, same exam, busted. And so his instructor, his senior instructor, his flight commander, his squadron commander, all signed the paperwork and recommended his discharge. They sent it to me. Sir, all we need is your signature. Be leery of anyone that says all they need is your signature. The reason you sign things is because it deserves your approval. You need to read before signing. You need to think about it because that's how we signify that you have given it the thought of your position. And so I looked at it and said, I want to talk to the airman. What? Sir, it's obvious. He busted three times. I want to talk to the airman. Laid the paper aside. He came, reported in. I said, let's have a seat. So we went over and sat together on the couch. And he told me the part of the story that I just told you. He said, I just can't get this stuff. I don't understand it. So I asked him about his background. He loved the outdoors. He loved working with people. But he literally didn't know the difference between a pair of pliers and a wrench. And we're trying to train him to be a crew chief on an aircraft? He didn't fail. We failed. Why in the world would we put him in that career field instead of something more suitable to him? So, I, again, I don't remember doing it. I would have had to pick up the phone, call Air Training Command Headquarters at Randolph in Texas, and say, hey, we need an exception. I know it's going to cost extra transportation money. We need to send him back to a career field where he can prosper because of the way he's wired. And we sent him back to Lackland, where the Security Forces School is. And he did just fine. And now he's standing in front of me in 2010 or 11 a master sergeant, an E-7. And he's so proud of his stripes. And he tells me that no one in his family has ever been in the military. And he's made his father so proud. Um, sometimes 
you're going to have to stand up and do the hard thing. And taking mercy in this young man and calling the blame where it really was on the Air Force and myself by extension and having the humility to call in some favors and do whatever it took to help him, that's what leaders do. So number three is seeking to serve. How is this different than being willing to serve? I already illustrated it with a bottle of water. Seeking is more than just being willing. It's really looking for the opportunity. And being leaders as servants is really biblical. Um, Luke 10, verse 30 to 37. This is the, the man that was on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among thieves. And he was wounded and stripped of his garments. Attacked, stripped wounded, abandoned. The priest came along and saw him pass by on the other side. Here comes the Levite. He looks, he passes by. We call this the story of the good Samaritan because he was the third one to come along. And he looked, and if you look at the passage in Luke 10, we see that that Samaritan took 12 actions. There are 12 action verbs that he took. And it wasn't on his schedule. Nobody texted him and said, hey, look on the side of the road. You'll see this guy that needs some help. We'll arrange your agenda. Just go ahead. No one told him to do that. He was going somewhere. I don't know where the Samaritan was going that day. On a trip, going back home. I don't know. But he was going somewhere. And he called all that off. He saw something that needed to be done, and he did it. That's why it's one of my leadership maneuvers. I think good leaders seek to serve. In Acts 6, we see Stephen picked to wait on tables because he was honest and full of the Holy Ghost and wise and full of faith. So there are a couple stories here I'm not going to tell, but I do want to tell this one. It was back in February, back February 24th, 2001. George W. Bush had been in office for a month and four days. It was inaugurated on January 20th, 2001. A month and four days later, he is at Tinker Air Force Base where I'm the vice commander. So we found out two days before he came that four couples would be able to stand at the bottom of Air Force One and greet the president and Mrs. Bush as they came down, went to a motorcade, went downtown, made a speech in Oklahoma City, back to Air Force One and flew back to D.C. And so I thought for two days, what am I going to say to the president? I mean, he's going to shake hands with me. He's going to be close enough for me to talk to him. And he's on his way to the motorcade, so I got one shot, probably one sentence to which he might respond, and he'll move on, what am I going to say? So I've been in the Air Force for um, almost 30 years, 25-plus years at the time. And I thought, you know, ever since I was a lieutenant, I have prayed for my chain of command. Guys, are you praying for your chain of command right now? Up and down the chain. I prayed up my chain of command all the way to the president, no matter who it was, when I was stationed in the Philippines and all my other assignments. I would pray for them. So I thought, that's just what I'm going to tell him. He's brand new in office. I'm going to let him see one guy in uniform, and I'm going to say, Mr. President, I pray for you. And that's what I did. He and Laura came down. They shook hands with the first couple. She preceded him down the line. 
She shook my hand, she met my wife, and then proceeded to the last two couples. And the president came down, he left the first couple, he came to me and shook my hand. He wasn't as tall as I thought he would be, but shook hands, and I said, Mr. President, I pray for you. I didn't say, how about the Rangers? He used to own the team. I didn't say, nice set of wheels, pointing to Air Force One. I thought I would try to encourage him. I said, Mr. President, I pray for you. He was just ready to let go of my hand. And he came back, and he came in close to me. And he and I had a personal conversation about his walk with the Lord. He told me, among other things, I hear that from a lot of people, and I'm grateful that people pray for me because I want to serve well. i never forget. This is six months before 9-11, when everything changed in his administration. Seek to serve. Don't just make it a throwaway moment. Take the good opportunities. Okay, sharing the credit and shouldering the blame. Uh, how is this related to integrity? I think it's related to integrity if you grab the credit and pass the blame. You're not being a man of integrity. Uh, I have heard countless people say, I have some good news, or we have a problem. I wonder why they say it that way. Why don't they ever say, we have some good news, and I have a problem? Uh, it's really admitting what everyone knows. If you're a senior leader, if you're in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, or more, uh, you understand that the accomplishments that are made are usually the result of many, and the failures are usually the results of a few. And so grabbing credit that's not yours alone, it's really an integrity issue. I think there's also great value in commending in public and correcting in private. In 1 Samuel, David, uh, 1745 is a great verse. Before he fought Goliath and defeated him, he said, loud enough for Goliath and Israel to hear, I come to you in the name of God. Let us be as, as open and bold. He gave God the credit even before the battle. I love it. Uh, Nehemiah, cupbearer, confidant, traveler, builder, general, governor. In chapter 1, he took the blame for Israel's sin before he approached the king. Uh, in our family, we have a custom at meals that we don't eat until the person who prepared the food takes the first bite. It's the way that we honor them. It's Romans 13, 7, given honor where honor is due. And even from the youngest age, I would teach our children to do this. And so our daughter came along first, and the signal was to wait for me to nod to the youngster, like two and three years old. I would just turn and nod, and that's their signal that they could go ahead and eat, and I'd go ahead and eat. We had company for dinner once, and I got so engrossed in the conversation, I never turned to give my daughter the signal. She's two or three. I remember to this day. We get halfway through my plate of food, and I look it over. She's got her legs up underneath her, and tears are just streaming down her eyes. And she's just looking up at me, waiting for me to nod and to give the signal. And I had to shoulder that blame. 
and we also changed the signal. So all she had to do was wait for me to take the first bite, and then she could. <laughs> so share the credit, shoulder the blame. Um, ask for help when you need it. What keeps people from asking for help when you need it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's pride. We all need help sometime. Weakness and meekness are not the same thing. Weakness is lack of strength. Meekness is strength under control. So it's interesting that asking for help when you need it comes after seeking to serve. Others may have a need and you have an opportunity that you can serve them when they ask for it. Uh, we don't have time to talk through the life of Jacob. You see, the second half, almost the whole second half of Genesis is about Joseph. But sandwiched in there, if you look for it, is the life of Jacob. He was a patriarch. He was somebody. He had a lot of wealth. And there was a famine in the land. He sent his remaining sons to buy corn in Egypt. They came back. You remember that they had told, who they didn't know, Joseph, the ruler, that one son is not, referring to Joseph, and Benjamin is back with the dad. They ran out of food. He said, go again, take double the money, take the story of the silver cup. You remember all about that? And then Jacob ultimately went, and he was given the best in the land. It really strikes me that as powerful as Jacob was, he asked for help when he needed in sending his sons to Egypt. And there are times, men, where if you don't ask for help, it's going to get done wrong or not get done at all. And so, again, a little humility goes a long way. In Matthew 8, verses 5 to 10, Jesus was beseeched for a servant who was tormented by palsy, and, uh, and the man whose name isn't even recorded was the one that beseeched Jesus and asked for help when he needed it. I don't have time to tell you this story, but it's in the book. It's a good story of, of a four-star general asking a captain for help when the general needed it. And maybe that's, you see yourself, you're the captain in life and you're working around generals. They need you. They do. And so if you're on the other end, don't hesitate to ask for help when you need it. Good leaders are good readers because we don't know everything. It provides new ideas. It provides old successes. Now, be careful what you read. But good leaders are good readers. I think we read the lead. Uh, consider 2 Timothy 4.13. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy at the end of his life, and apparently winter is coming. And he writes to Timothy, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when you come, bring with you, and the books, but especially the parchments. Cloak, books, parchment, scriptures, but bring the books. And in 1 Timothy, in the context of scripture, Paul writes to Timothy to be an example and give attendance to reading scripture. Exodus 17, after the battle with the Amalekites, the Lord tells Moses to write the story of that battle in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. <clears throat> write the memorial in a book. 192 times in Scripture, records, chronicles, books are mentioned. Think of the significance of the books in Daniel and in Joshua and Samuel 
Think of Josiah. Think of Mordecai. It was a turning point in the story of Esther. Here's a list of books uh, that I've read that, that are just superb. Uh, Millard's The Power of Doubt, The River of Doubt, uh, about one of the tributaries of the Amazon. Uh, McCullough's 1776 is a good book on leadership in American history. Tony Dungy's Quiet Strength, uh, the Super Bowl winning football coach, in addition to talking about uh, leadership and meekness, talks about the suicide of his son and how he dealt with that. You see Hughes's book, The Dis Disciplines of a Godly Man. Bruce Olson wrote a book entitled Bruco, a good story about missions. Tim Elmore, The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership, and there are a lot. But good leaders are good readers. Uh, keep a short list. And I would just ask, what kinds of things do you put on your to-do list? Are you doing only the fun things and not the things that only you can do or that you need to do? I would think about that. Uh, this is spelled out in the book. D-I-N is do it now. It's not always possible. If you can't do it now, write it down. Keep the list short. There are some things that need to be done today, like anger has a sundown clause. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Uh, some biblical examples. I mentioned Ephesians 4, 1 Kings 8. Uh, God kept his promise. Daniel 1. Daniel had a short list. There were things that he would not do. He purposed in his heart. He would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat or the wine which he drank. And in chapter 3, uh, the, uh, he and his three buddies would not serve other gods. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is linked to communion. You know, it's interesting that keeping a short list is linked to communion. We're not to partake of the Lord's Supper. If we have something against or we have offended someone else, we're to go take care of it first. It's, it's a big deal, keeping a short list. Uh, I don't have time to tell you this story, but uh, it's a good one about a, a young boy that had a very short list. He was about three years old, and he wanted to know if we could keep his baby brother when we brought him home from the hospital. That's, that's a great story. Okay, set the course and pace. I would just say sometimes we are better doing the former than we are the latter. I think setting the course requires a vision, and set, keeping, setting the pace requires moral courage. Sometimes I'd have to put my size 12 flight boot right where it needed to be, get people moving faster than they wanted to. And sometimes you just need to call time out. When all around you want a yes, a go, you need to call time out. That requires moral courage. Examples are uh, the Apostle Paul in a dream of the night was told to get ready and go. And it says he got ready at once. And they left immediately. They sailed straight for Samothrace. That is a straight course. And they stayed there certain days an element of setting the pace. Second Timothy 4, at the end of Paul's life, he said, I have fought a good fight, I've finished the course, and I've kept the faith. I don't have time to tell you this story, navigating a 10-hour flight where we began to lose our nav aids, and the problem is if you leave Brisbane and you miss Guam, uh, the outcome is not a good one. <laughs> you crash and die. Uh, that story for another time. Uh, new commander's guidance. We'll have to pass on that one for now. Accountability. So I've been holding some guys accountable this week. 
I held Pastor Hart accountable last night. You see, when we say hold people accountable, we always think of the negative. There's a positive side to accountability. When someone messes up, for sure you've got to take action. But when someone does something well, it's your duty as a leader to recognize them, to reward them, to award them, to promote them, to tell others what they've done. And we sometimes get better on the right side of this chart than we do on the left side. Uh, it has two sides and it pertains to others as well as oneself. Uh, Joshua 7 is after the battle of Ai when 36 Israelites were killed. And the Lord told Joshua, get up, wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Israel has sinned in the den of lions. It says in Daniel 6 that he was held accountable. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me for as much or because as before him innocence was found. God checked whether Daniel was truly innocent before sending the angel to close the mouths of the lion. I don't have time to tell this very embarrassing story, which unfortunately is in the book. And the handshake with a sergeant's son uh, for another time. Um, so, number 10, exercise regularly. When I say exercise regularly, you're thinking of the left, right? We got that, physical. I'm also talking about exercising mentally. I'm also talking about exercising spiritually. First Timothy, uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. First Timothy 4, for bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promised the life that now is and that which is to come. And then again, Second Timothy 4.13 Paul mentions the cloak for the physical, the books for the mental, and the parchments for the spiritual. And we'll have to skip the story. So these are the 10 uh, leadership maneuvers. I gave you notice at the front that I would love to handle some questions. Pastor Stephen, would you come and help us with uh, comments or questions?